Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. Uh, in this episode, we'll be continuing our examination of Solar Lottery, and we'll be looking at chapters 10, 11, and 12. Uh, we've broken up this book into six parts, each about three chapters, although the last episode will only be, be two chapters. So we're, we're starting with chapter 10. If you're just joining us, I urge you to go back and listen to the first three parts so I don't have to repeat myself uh, too much. So this chapter opens with another suggestion of the importance of automation in the economy of solar lottery. Um, this is hinted at throughout. It's addressed directly in the early part of the, of the novel, but it's, it's more often suggested um, throughout that. And I, I think that this is going to be like something we should just uh, kind of attach a homing beacon on whenever we see kind of the robot. We got to think back to his first novel, Solar Lottery, and what it meant in Solar Lottery and, and kind of assume it means similar things in other books. Of course, automation is a theme in stories such as Autofac, such as Autofac, uh, the gun, as early as the gun, which I think is his third story or something. But it comes up again and again. And even when it's not directly analyzed in terms of society and culture, it's there. The, the, the importance of automation is there. And what it means is automate well for dick automation undermines the need for people it reduces the value of people because they're not needed for the economy anymore and i think this is most well articulated in the crack in space where you literally have an entire generation locked in cryogenic suspension so here we have the importance of automation in the economy once again uh the very opening line of chapter 10 actually the macmillan robot moved languidly up and down the aisles collecting Tickets. Overhead, the midsummer sun beat down and was reflected from the gleaming silver hull of the sleek Intercon rocket liner. Below, the vast blue of the Pacific Ocean lay sprawled out in eternal surface of color and light. Um, a rather nice image, almost cinematic, really. Now, the Macmillan robots in this novel are kind of the dumb robots, which is contrasted with Peleg, who's supposed to... He's, I mean, that's not a smart robot either, but it, it's capable of, of intelligence by having its mind melded with, with humans. So we find a young man, later revealed to be Peleg, talking with a young woman. And we got a, uh, another interesting description here. She was a very young girl, not over 18 at most. Her breasts were small and uptilted. Her hair was curly and short, a halo of dark orange. The latest color style around her slim neck and finely cut features. She blushed and returned hastily to her TV lenses. Beside her, the harmless, pale-eyed young man got out his package of cigarettes, took one, and politely offered her the gold-encased pack. And that's Peleg. Not obviously not a harmless. Uh, he's an assassin. But based on who's in Peleg, you're going to have different characters. I think it would be interesting to see this uh, adapted into film, mostly because you'd have the one actor having to take on many roles. And I, I know that was in that um, M. Night Shyamalan movie, which I didn't see. Um, you have, of course, in the Prestige, you see a character, a, an actor, able to take on two characters at once. Here, you'd have, you know, a dozen different characters. That would make this an interesting adaptation, I think. Uh, and this version of Pelag is interested in this young woman, and that interest, you know, is going to wane or wax throughout this chapter. Now, after a short conversation and the revelation that the woman, whose name is Margaret Lloyd, is living with 
a man named Walter, Pelag invites her up to the bar. So there's a kind of an effort at seduction here, and you don't quite know the reason why. Um, but he makes a cryptic statement that, quote, assuming I still know who you are when we get up there, you know, we, we might have, we might be in luck. It's obviously the person in Pelag, um, it knows that he's not going to always be there, right? So the personalities are going to change abruptly. And hasn't this always happened to someone? You're, you're, you're maybe out on a date with someone and you notice the person next to you changes, their behavior changes, their characteristics change. So uh, here we have it uh, in a science fiction novel, of course, uh, explained through this, this type of android. But it's a common enough experience, right? And Dick was actually interested in this in stories like Father Thing, you know, which I think is a really powerful critique of patriarchal parenthood parentage all right so peter wakeman is discussing the appearance of uh, preston um, with cartwright the new quiz master and now preston of course is the the leader of that cult who everyone presumed to be dead but now it seems he's alive right he appeared as a voice out in the frontier out at the 10th planet so Cartwright starts to express his worry about his own future, and he's not really as interested as he was in the beginning of the novel with the Prestonite movement, mostly because he's afraid he's going to be killed in the next few days. So Wakeman tries to calm him down and reassures him that the core, uh, the core of telepaths will protect him. Cartwright's protectors suggest that he wait out the immediate crisis on the moon, which will make it easier for them to identify and stop Peleg and provide enough time to get the security state up and running. They hope they can trap him, try trap Peleg, trying to assassinate him at Batavia, take him out. And then at worst, if he does follow him to the moon, unlikely but possible, he'd be easier to catch there too. He'd be isolated. Now we switch scenes here, and for a brief period of time, Bentley is taking drinks with Margaret Lloyd, and he switches out quickly. So we learn a bit of how this Peleg thing is working. Everyone must be ready to be thrust into Peleg at any moment. It's entirely random, right? So as I talked about, I think in the last episode, it's it's interesting that uh, Varric, our main character, one of our main characters, the one who wants to undo the system of min-max and randomness in the lottery, uses a system of randomness to do that. Right? That's the trick to defeat the telepaths. Since everyone has to be ready to be thrust into Pelag at any moment and go forth with their strategy, there's nothing for the telepaths to latch onto. If Pelag is destroyed, the operator will be sent back before he actually experiences the death. Now, during this conversation, Al Davis, who is Bentley's friend, is operating Pelag. So we see the... Now, I think, actually, Pelag is the one with Margaret Lloyd, and Al Davis is married, so there's a bit of a hint of adultery here. I don't know how far we want to take that, but it's um, it's possible that uh, Al Davis is uh, perhaps cheated on his wife via Pelag, or at least attempting to. Now, Wakeman's plan seems to be to remove Cartwright entirely from Batavia while making it a trap for Pelag, right? There's a big risk here, though, because the security on the moon is not as strong as around Batavia, around the main government buildings. But Wakeman thinks they can get Pelag in Batavia. Now, Rita, another important telepath, is more doubtful. Uh, and Rita is another person in the core charged with protecting um, Cartwright. She's more doubtful that the plan will work, but she goes along with it. Meanwhile, Peleg is approaching the director of buildings. Now, these three chapters, 10, 11, 12, is all like one long chase scene. This would be the central, I guess, 
set piece in a in a film adaptation of of, of this novel. All right, it's all about Pellick trying to assassinate Cartwright and the steps he takes to get around the teeps and how the telepaths try to try to overcome him. So it's kind of a cat and mouse scene for a few chapters here. Chapter eleven. Now in London, Reese Varick who's not actually directly overseeing the Pelic operation. I guess he's very confident in it. He's instead interested in the Prestonite situation. And so in London, Reese Varick approaches the crypt of Preston, and they investigate, trying to investigate if the body really is there or not. Workmen secure the crypt and bring it back up into his lab. Now we get here a description of what Preston um, looks like. There is a body of sorts in there. Sorry, I just had to find the page. So Preston had been a small man, like most cranks. He was a tiny, withered leaf of a creature with prominent, wrinkled ears pulled forward by his heavy, horn-rimmed glasses. There was a wild tangle of dark gray hair, rough and uncut and uncombed, and small, almost feminine lips. His stubbled cheek was chin was not prominent, but hard with determination. He had a crooked, lumpish nose, a gutting Adam's apple, and unsightly neck protruding from his food-stained shirt. It was Preston's eyes that attracted Varric, harsh, blazing, two uncompromising steel-sharp orbs that smoldered behind his thick lenses. Preston glared out, furious with wrath like an ancient prophet. One crabbed hand was up, fingers twisted with arthritis. It was almost a gesture of defiance, but more of pointing. The glow, eyes glow, glowed fiercely at Varric, their aliveness startled him. All right, so that's sort of our description of, of Varric. It's an odd posture to be in when you're dead. But it turns out that this is actually just a dummy, uh, and the the real body of Preston isn't there at all. Meanwhile, Eleanor, Moore, Moore, and Varric debate what the voice could be coming from. Either it's Preston's consciousness in an android, kind of like the Pelig android, or possibly the original body is still there. Moore doubts that it could be a synthetic, since Pelig was only designed last year, and he kind of had a monopoly on that technology. He has no idea how such a robot could have been made. Margaret and Peleg, meanwhile, are entering the busy sections of Batavia. So we switch to the chase scene again. Margaret wants Peleg to meet Walter, her boyfriend, the man she lives with, and she invites him to dinner. Now David, who's operating Peleg, wants to get away. He want, he's got his mission to go on. The minute Davis sees Walter, he realizes that Walter is a teep and he has to get away as quickly as possible. Before he can effect the escape, his mind is taken out of Peleg, passes and passing the problem of escape onto someone else. But this is how it's effective, right? By always switching minds, he's never in one place long enough for the teeps to get a hold of them. So now we get a chase scene, but it shows this plan working. Being unable to predict Peleg's motions, he's able to always get away and escape the teep network. Meanwhile, Major Sheffer of the Teep Corps is baffled by the failure. He reports the strange occurrences to Wakeman. Pelig had seen move randomly, and the Teeps can't hold on to him. Quote, he's gone. He's standing in front of me at the same and at the same time he's gone. He's here and he isn't here. Who are you? What do you see? Mr. Carthright isn't here just now. What's your name? Are you the same man or Or is there that we haven't out this is going out is out. So this is kind of how the teeps are experiencing this. They're very confused. It's it's not something they're used to at all. It's basically like they're in a mind and the mind flips out. Um, and later on, we're going to see that these teeps actually 
kind of visualize the, the face of the person they're connected to. So the, the, actually what they see changes. So this is like kind of just a long chase sequence where we flip back and forth between what Peleg's doing and the officers kind of organize the defense. Now, chapter 12, we have, uh, we see Wakeman on the moon and he's moping. And Rita is sunbathing. I don't know if this is just a toss out to his, some of his more juvenile readers, but she should be working, right? But she's actually sunbathing on the moon. Quote, Rita O'Neill had climbed from the water and was sunbathing drowsily a little way behind the main group of people. Her sleek, naked body gleamed moistly in the hot light that filtered down through the lens of that protective balloon. When she saw Wakeman, she sat up quickly, black hair cascading in glittering tide of motion down her tan shoulders and back. I think that's just there for titillation, but, you know, do what you want with it. She's sunbathing on the moon during a crisis. Wakeman does deduce that Moore figured out a way to get through the team network. Now, on this, he's right, but he can't figure out how it was done. Meanwhile, Peleg is approaching the directorate buildings. Reese and Eleanor watch on. Their concern is that they may have been too effective. If they start using non-teeps, the advantage will be lessened significantly. And of course, with Cartwright on the moon, they can't find him. So the mission seems to be a failure. But by looking up, Peleg sees, or whoever's in Peleg at that moment, sees the transporter, uh, or they look up the transporter records, and then even Peleg is able to see the rocket go into space. So they deduce that Cartwright got away on that rocket. Um, so Peleg was on the, um, or Cartwright got on the rocket ship. So at this very moment, Peleg actually launches himself into space. Now, he's a robot, right? But he's also a rocket ship. So it's a nice visual scene where he shoots off into, into space to uh, go to the moon. With Peleg going into space, it's clear to Wakeman that, that he's a multiple personality synthetic. So he figures it out at this point. He announces a new strategy for the defenders on the moon. And we reach the big confrontation. Moore operating Peleg versus Wakeman. And so we have a, a two or three page description. It's on page 141 and 142 of the Mariner version. Now, when Peleg kills one of the teeps, we get a sense of how telepathy is experienced by the other telepaths. Uh, the death broke the makeshift network that Wakeman created, and they're basically helpless at this point. They get close, actually, on Earth to capturing him by using... As, as Varric suggested might be might happen by using just regular people, right? Because they can just see a person and they're not confused. Peleg is just Peleg, right? He's still a great fighter and well-armed and a rocket ship and all those things, so he's tough to kill. But that was their advantage, actually. Not using teeps probably would have been a more successful strategy to defend Cartwright. And it's also interesting how Wakeman sees uh, faces in his mind as these shifts take place. Quote, the Peleg body altered suddenly. Wakeman's blood froze at the uncanny sight. Here on the desolate surface of the moon, a man was changing before his eyes. The features shifted, melted momentarily, then reformed. It wasn't the same. It wasn't the same face, because it wasn't the same man. Moore was gone, and the new operator had taken over. Behind the pale blue eyes, a different personality peered out. So they're actually kind of visualizing these personalities. So anyways, that's these three chapters. Uh... This part of the novel is very plot heavy. It advances a lot of necessary plot, getting us to the climax of the novel, which will be revealed in the final uh, two episodes. It's thematically less interesting. We have uh, less here to talk about, I guess, in the core themes of the novel, because it is so plot heavy. It's mostly acting out the assassination attempt, which we've been waiting for. Uh, basically, it's been talked about since the first page. 
and we see how successful the Pelag robot is at evading the telepathic network. Uh, much will be resolved in the next three chapters, but for that, you'll have to wait for the next episode. Um, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. How nice a dame you can be I know the way you've treated other guys you've been with Luck be a lady with me A lady doesn't leave her escort It isn't fair